0: I wish more Christians knew what the word balance meant. I'm not saying Christians should ignore the faith. I mean, you gotta take your kids to Sunday school when they're little, and a little prayer now and then is always a good thing. But I don't get what possesses these religious fanatics. Religion has a place, but learn where that place is, okay? A man has to make a living I know that one reason why I've done so well is because I know where to draw the line. If you want to be successful, be balanced. Life has been good to me, and I see no reason to change. At least I don't have to worry about going to hell. After all, isn't my happiness what God wants the most? I'm losing.
1: I want to thank all of you, whether you're North Richmond Hills campus, South Lake campus, or West Fort Worth campus, for being with us this weekend. I wish for everyone, uh, whether you're attending one of these campuses or you're listening to us through the internet, I hope you have a great holiday season. I really do. And I want to thank all of you from our church who have been so generous regarding the beginning of our harvest offering. Our goal is 1.6 million, and we've never been this close to the goal after just one week. We know a lot of people weren't here last weekend. You still haven't given. Let me encourage you to do that, and let's reach that goal quicker than we ever have before, and that would be quite exciting. Now, I need to take a moment and do something that's very important for me personally to do Uh, If you have looked inside uh, our weekly bulletin, you see a picture of John and Joanne Jones. For many of you, that needs no explanation. And for some of you, it does. Because you don't know that the 11 years before I came to this church 23 years ago, John Jones was the pulpit minister here. And then he was a senior minister for some years. And later, he served this church as an elder for some years. And as the leader of Bread for Hungry World ministry for some years and all those things are important and all of us have many many reasons to be grateful to John and Joanne Jones but I have one that's very special and that is that nobody worked harder to make sure that when I came here I would be loved than John Jones they say when you're a preacher you can't go to a church where the old preacher stays and it go well well that's not true But it depends on that older preacher making sure it goes well. And John did. He has been for 23 years my biggest encourager and one of the dearest people I know. And Joanne is just as great as he is. We are going to miss them a lot. Someday it will be my turn. Someday I will be the old preacher. And I know how to do that well. Because John taught me. And I'm grateful. I hope you have a chance to say in a special way how much you love John and Joanne in these next few days. One more thing. Should we pass inspection, and we think we will, we will two weeks from tonight have the opening of the remodeled worship center. And we will be moving back in, and we are very, very excited about that. Now let me speak to that for a moment. Because of that special occasion, I am going to teach a special message that weekend as we dedicate that building to the Lord. In fact, we're going to have 24 hours of prayer and worship in the worship center, and you can go online and you can sign up to join me and other leaders as we dedicate that room to the Lord. And then at 5 o'clock on Saturday, December the 1st, we'll have our first service there. Now, we're inviting all of you from Southlake and West Fort Worth to join us that Saturday night because many of you gave in our Greater Things campaign to help pay for this remodel of the worship center. And by the way, we're moving in debt-free, like we love to say around here. And we want you to come join us for that Saturday. Now, we will have a special teaching on Sunday morning at Southlake and West Fort Worth Uh, so that you won't hear the same message twice that one weekend. But we would love for the whole church that can to come two weeks on Saturday and worship with us because we think it's going to be outstanding. I need to prepare you for one thing. If you asked any preacher about the room he preaches in, what's one thing you would change? You're going to get one or two answers almost every time. You're either going to get, I wish it was bigger and more people could be in it. Or you're going to get, I wish it felt more intimate. We got both in this new remodel. Because when you walk in, it is going to feel smaller. We've taken out several rows of pews. We've brought the stage out. I'm going to be closer to you than ever. But on the other side, because of the seats that were used and the way we arranged them, we've put over 300 more seats in there. So we've increased seating capacity 15 to 20%. And yet, I am going to be so close to you in the new room. You can't sit anywhere and me not see you if you fall asleep. It is going to be the ideal preaching room in the history of preaching, and I can't wait. So, I hope whatever campus you're on, you can join us as we dedicate our new worship center to the Lord. It's going to be amazing. Now, I don't usually start a sermon with this many announcements. In fact, I try never to, but there's a reason every one of these was important, and I'm trying to put this sermon off as long as I can. Because I have wrestled all week, I've struggled all week. I don't really want to preach this message. It's not that I mind that the seven series is ending. It's just I wanted it to end last week. Philadelphia, the church of the open door, the church that made Jesus smile. That's the church I want to finish on. Instead, we get Laodicea, the church that made Jesus sick. But it's critical that we look at the church in Laodicea because I do believe in some ways it is the most American of the seven churches. These are real letters written to real people in a real time in a place they called Asia. Today we call it Turkey. And if you could go, you could visit the ruins of all seven cities. And if you went to the ruins of Laodicea, you'll see by this picture, the first thing you notice, there's a lot there. And there's a reason. This was a big and important city. Three major highways connected in Laodicea. Now, that meant one thing. That meant traffic. That meant business. That meant commerce. And Laodicea became a huge banking center in that part of the world. Also, they became famous as a fashion center because there was a kind of black wool that was grown in that area that made a very uh, expensive wool that people all over the world wanted. So banking was big there. The fashion was big there. Another thing big there was medicine. They had a medical school that made this powder called Phrygian powder that helped people see better. So what on was pointing is, a lot of people in Laodicea had money. That is the ruin of a house. Now, that may not say much to you, but in ancient times, that's ginormous. That is a mansion. But that was not an atypical house in Laodicea because Laodicea is where people with money live. And the next picture you see at a theater. Well, a lot of old cities back then had huge theaters. Laodicea had two. That's just one of them. Now, when you live in a city where there are lots of theaters, you know people have extra income. And that was Laodicea. In fact, here's the funny thing. Laodicea had everything money could buy except good water. Now, that's a picture of the aqueduct they used. Not too far away was a town called Hierapolis. You read about it in the book of Colossians. They were famous for their warm springs. People would go there to sit in the hot water. Also, not too far away was a city called Colossae. They were famous for their cold springs. But Laodicea had to get their water from those places. And by the time it came from the aqueduct and got to Laodicea, it was pretty blah. In fact, it picked up a lot of chemicals along the way. And so for all of their famous money, for their theaters, for their fashion, for their banks, Laodicea had lousy tasting water. And it, in many ways, symbolized the church. Because sometimes when life is good, it's hard for a church to be well. And the church in Laodicea, well, it was critical. Let's look together at this last letter of Jesus. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire, and then you'll be rich. Also, buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes, so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in We will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now, Jesus is a brilliant communicator. And in this short letter, he uses three incredible metaphors. And we want to explore them. But the first and maybe the most famous is this. Jesus says, in fact, one translation just puts it this way. You make me want to vomit. Now, do not email me that I use that word. (laughs) Because I've decided a long time ago I'm not going to apologize for words that the Bible's not afraid of. And what Jesus literally says is, you make me want to vomit. You make me nauseous. Jesus apparently isn't very concerned that if he is that direct, he might offend somebody. The real question is, why does he use such a shocking metaphor unless the situation was critical? And I thought all week how I might be able to illustrate that. And here's how I'm going to try I wonder if anyone here has ever been part of what is called an intervention. Where you get with some people and you meet with someone often in an unexpected way. To try to get them to detour from a path they are on that is going to end badly. And they don't always appreciate the intervention. But you know that when something or someone is critical, speaking the truth is the most loving thing you can do. What did Jesus say? Those I love, I correct, and I discipline. Why is Jesus so critical? Well, because he wants the critical to get well. Why do you do an intervention You do it because you love the patient too much to be patient anymore. It wasn't easy. You put it off as long as you could. You didn't want to do it, but you love them too much to not do something to try to detour them, to turn them from the path that would lead to destruction. But here's the thing. If you've done an intervention, you know that often the first response of the person is denial and even anger. Often the critical are the last to admit there's a problem. And I'm sure in Laodicea they would have thought problem. Some of these churches Jesus is writing have false teaching being tolerated. He doesn't mention that, does he? Problem, some of those churches have blatant immorality going on among the church. He doesn't mention that problem. We don't have a problem here in Laodicea, but Jesus says two things. You say you don't realize. You say you're wretch. Dress nice, good health. You don't realize you're poor, you're naked, you're blind. You can't see that you don't see. It it reminds me of a story I love to retell. Bruce Larson years ago was with his family in California and they are on a bike ride. And they're going down a trail, and they see a sign. It says, naturalist camp. And he thinks, wow, a nature trail. Let's take my kids down that. Well, pretty soon, he figures out what naturalist camp means, because about six totally nude bicyclers come up and go right past his family. And he's wondering what his kids are thinking when his five-year-old says, Dad, they're not wearing their helmets. (laughs) I mean, how do you miss naked (laughs) if someone's naked walking down the street and they're saying I can't believe I didn't bring my sunglasses I'm thinking do you not see you got a bigger problem here (laughs) isn't it true that when you do an intervention the critical are often the last to see they've got a problem here's the thing Laodicean churches rarely see that they are Laodicean churches. And that's why it's critical that we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so what was it that made this church so sick that it was making Jesus sick? Now, two things. You know a church is critical first when it's infected with the virus of sufficiency. Jesus said, you say, I'm rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. Now, that was not just their assessment, that was their boast. The church in Laodicea was full of people who were getting their sense of identity And their sense of security from their prosperity. They had contracted the most deadly ism a church can contract. And it's rampantly infected the American church. And the most deadly ism is not liberalism or hedonism or even legalism. It is materialism. And when I say materialism, I'm not just trying to rebuke people for having things because you can be a materialist and have nothing. Materialism is a worldview. It's not so much what's in your wallet, but what's in your head. Because if you are infected with This disease. You think that what is valuable is what is purchasable. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm having breakfast at McDonald's. And I listen and they're playing Christmas music. In the first of November. Now I love Christmas music. But my first thought was, can't we just have Thanksgiving? I see in the paper that they're not even going to wait till Friday morning anymore or even midnight. Now the stores are going to start opening at 5 o'clock Thursday afternoon. Hey, get that whole Thanksgiving dinner over with, move the stuff off the table, and let's go shop. Hasn't that become the American spirit? Let's just kind of forget about being grateful and let's go head to the mall, in fact. What is the most popular tourist attraction in America? Now, don't say Disney World. That's number two. It gets about 16 million tourists a year. Number one gets 40 million. What's that a picture of? The Mall of America, complete with amusement park and roller coasters and over 400 stores, And it attracts over 40 million tourists a year. Because the number one. Pastime in our country. Is buying. Now I believe. Jesus wants the church. To confront this disease. This idea that. What's valuable is purchasable. But what's happened is that the church has been infected with the disease. In fact, we've baptized the disease so that in many churches today, they actually preach that if you love God and he blesses you, you're supposed to be able to buy more stuff. The belief that joy is a purchasable commodity is an epidemic But Jesus says, it's such an illusion. You've got a closet full of stuff, he says, but you don't have real riches. You get that from me. You got more clothes than you can wear in a season and you're going shopping for more. But you're not clothed in righteousness because you get that. From me. And the salve of the spirit that opens your eyes so that you can see life from an eternal perspective. You get that. From me. And what happens is that the virus of sufficiency can infect a church. To the point that we forget that what we need most is from Jesus. Now, I don't mean this to be critical, but I'm trying to be candid here. In America, you can do church well without Jesus. You can build the attractive building. You can have the right programming. You can have awesome music and not need Jesus. And people will come. Or let me even be more vulnerable. You don't need Jesus to preach in a way that people will love what you say, and buy the CDs. I've done this long enough that I could I could walk in my office one week and spend no time in prayer, no time with the Lord, read a few books jot down a few points, find a couple of funny jokes, and stand up week after week. And a lot of people wouldn't mind or notice that I wasn't needing Jesus. And Jesus says, it makes me sick. And it should bother you if what I've said the last few moments doesn't bother you, this virus of sufficiency, and always coupled with it, is what I would call the epidemic of blandness. And that's that second metaphor. Jesus says, You're like lukewarm water. It just, you put it in your mouth and you just go, blah. You wish it was hot water or cold water, but it's just. Blah. It's it's his way of describing room temperature faith, complacent discipleship that would rather be comfortable than radical. The church in Laodicea was the bland leading the bland. And I'm talking about more than just their worship, although my guess is when you got together on the weekend to worship at that church, it was pretty dull. But he's talking more about the way they were living out their calling. They were such tepid Christians that it nauseated Jesus. I don't think he's saying, you are doing ungodly things. I think he's saying, you're doing godless things. Now hear me out. When you go to the marketplace and you go to your jobs, you don't take me. I'm not there. It's not like you're surfing the internet for porn or cheating your business partner. It's just There's no sense in your job that you're on mission for me. You go home, you I'm not there. I'm not saying you're screaming at your wife or beating your kids. I'm just saying it's making no difference that you claim faith in me at home. A professor from the University of North Carolina did a survey a national survey of faith among teenagers that's gotten a lot of uh, interest and he said here was his conclusion the dominant religion of teenagers in America and here's what he called it. it's three long words he called it moralistic therapeutic deism let me break that down deism is the idea that there's a God he's way off in the distance he created everything but he's pretty much unconnected, and leaves you alone. Moralistic means this God wants you to be nice. Have some standards. Try to be a good person. And by the way, if you are, you should get to go to heaven. And therapeutic means He is good at last-second counseling. Whenever you need to be happier, call on Him. Because He wants you, most of all, to be happy. And they argue this is the faith of most teenagers in America. A God that doesn't get too involved in my life, and I'm fine with that, who wants me to be a nice person, and if I'm ever in a real jam, I can call on Him. And they say that is why greater and greater numbers of young people are are claiming no faith. Another very interesting survey I saw recently. They asked people to name what particular faith they are. Well, you might be and should know that in the last about seven years, the largest increase was the group that said Atheist. From 2005 to 2012, they've grown from 1% to 5%, which is still small. But 500% growth is pretty amazing. But another part of the survey that was really intriguing to me Guess which faith group or non-faith group has the lowest retention rate of their children? Atheist. Only 30% of children that grow up with atheist parents remain atheist when they become adults. Apparently growing up in an environment where there's no meaning and no ultimate hope is very unsatisfactory. So where's this increasing number of atheists coming from? Answer, they're coming from church families. That apparently in America today, the greatest way to raise an adult atheist is to raise a child in a church like Laodicea. Where lukewarm, tepid, insipid Christianity is normal. Normal where everyone says the right things and sings the right songs but following Jesus makes no difference once you get off the campus of the church the bad news is that many churches are critical the good news is that Jesus can do more than just warn churches. He can cure them. But he has to be asked. And that to me is the third and frankly for me the most stunning metaphor. He says I stand at the door and knock. Now just get that. Jesus is asking his church, the church he bought, the church he died for, he is asking his church to let him in. Now that should sober us. You see what I mean we can do church without Jesus? And Jesus is at the door saying, would someone at church Let me in. And so here's the final thing I want to say. To wrap up the whole series. If you don't remember anything else, please remember this. It's critical to always invite Jesus to church. He's not an accessory. He's the answer. And no matter how many right things we do something's wrong if it doesn't lead to an encounter with Jesus. Now, I think in our church, this is a particularly important word for us to hear right now. Because we are in a season where we could point to a lot of right things. We have three awesome campuses. We're about to have a brand new worship center. we got an amazing youth program. We have awesome children's classes. And can't you see us just bringing a friend and pointing to all the things going on? And yet, If people come to church, and that church does everything well, except experience Jesus, that church is sick. And it's critical that we get this. Francis Chan, in his book Crazy Love, tells this story. Of a friend of his that was named Stan Gerlach. Very successful businessman and a fervent, fervent follower of Jesus. And so Stan is doing a eulogy. And he just feels led by the Spirit in this eulogy to preach the gospel. And so Stan tells people, you don't know when it's your time. When God calls you. You need to be ready. You need Jesus. And he just offers Jesus to everybody. And then he goes and he sits down. And after a few seconds, he falls over dead. Francis gets the call. And so he gets in his car and he goes over to the families. And they're literally just driving up as he gets there. And the wife gets out and the kids get out. And of course, they're crying. But one of the boys runs up and says, Francis, did you hear? I'm so proud of my dad. He died doing what he loved most, telling people about Jesus. And so Francis gets the family together. And we've all, as ministers, been in this role where you need to say a word to a family in grief. And he turns to a passage that's different than most. He, he turns to Matthew 10. And he reads these words. If anyone confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven. And he looks at that family and all those kids And he says, a moment ago, your daddy was saying to a crowd, this is Jesus. And a moment later, Jesus was saying to God, this is Stan Gerlach. He was confessing Jesus. And now Jesus is confessing him. And my heart for our church is that we're just always introducing people to Jesus. That you can't come and be among the people called the hills and not meet Jesus. And it starts... By opening the door. Last week Jesus said to a church. You've been faithful. I'm going to open a door for you to be even more fruitful. But this week Jesus says. Open the door. Invite me to church. So we're going to do that. And. For those who can on every campus, as an act of our humility and confessing our lack of sufficiency, I'm going to ask you to join me. Let's kneel for a second as we talk to Jesus. And as we're kneeling on every campus, if you're on a prayer team, would you take your place as everyone else kneels? Please come and take your place. And I want you just to kneel with me. And I want you to start by praying this prayer. Lord Jesus... Deliver me from a stale faith. Come in and take over my life. Take a second and please open the door for Jesus in your life. Now, please, would you do this? Lord Jesus, deliver our church from a sufficient spirit. Come and reign in this place. With one voice on three campuses, let's ask Jesus to our church. Oh, Jesus, may may we be so full of you that no one can be around us without you spilling out. Amen. Let's all stand, please. Now, I got a favor to ask of you, and I'm very, very serious about this. I believe the enemy, if he's going to attack our church with a spirit of sufficiency, is going to start with me. Not because I'm more important, but just because I have a voice in this church like no one else's. I'm asking you, whatever campus you're on, I'm asking you to pray regularly that I will always know how much I need Jesus. And pray that I will never stop telling you the same thing is that critical now we want to pray for you please come while we worship